Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 254. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code TherapyChat when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And this week, which is the week of Thanksgiving in the U.S., I am bringing you an episode that is basically in response to last week's episode. So last week in episode 253, I talked with Tina Gilbertson, who is a therapist who specializes in helping parents who are estranged from their adult children. Her focus is on helping those parents who wish to have relationships with their adult children and their grandchildren. She focuses on helping them understand what needs to happen in order to repair those relationships. Oftentimes, the parents don't understand why their adult children are not willing to spend time with them, to communicate with them, or to bring their grandchildren around them. And for the parents, there's a lot of hurt and confusion. Obviously, there's a lot of pain on the part of the adult children as well, which is what leads to the estrangement. I'm very grateful for the work that Tina is doing because these adult children are not going to be able to repair the relationships on their own. If the parents aren't willing to participate, it's not going to happen. And Tina, through her work with the Reconnection Club in particular, and her one-on-one work with parents helps to heal those relationships. So I was really excited to have Tina on. I received a few comments from listeners about the episode. People had some strong reactions, and I can't say that the reactions were surprising, but I wanted to address them because I think it's really important what's been raised. So I'm going to read to you the comments that came in about this episode. The first comment is from 
Sarah M. She says, I wish you would address the reverse situation when parents cut off their adult children. It is never tackled. In my situation, my mother has cut me off for five months after we had fights during quarantine. She would act like the victim and couldn't stand me. She put me in the persecutor role. It was so painful to be ignored for this long. She finally sent a text for my birthday claiming she cut with all the family for health reasons. I believe it has been just against me, not my brother. She added that she's not ready for calls, only a few text messages, or she gets stressed and she needs calm. She put the focus on her again and her health to prevent me from bringing up her abusive silent treatment, not caring how I've been doing. I was first moved she contacted me, but now I realize she doesn't show much empathy and I will have to walk on eggshells if I want a relationship with her as she can't be accountable for how her silent treatment impacted me. So Sarah is talking about a very dysfunctional dynamic in her relationship with her mom and how she wants closeness with her mom and her mom won't allow it. Then when her mom was ready to communicate again, she didn't want to talk about what happened. And Sarah has all these unresolved feelings. That's what I'm reading into her comment. So I appreciate Sarah, you leaving that comment. And I, I want you to know that my work is focused on working with adults who have had dysfunctional and abusive childhoods. So what you're talking about is very familiar to me and very common among my clients' experiences. So I just want you to know that I see you, I hear your pain. And I want you to know that, you know, it really matters to me how you feel. And I want this podcast to be a place where you can feel supported. So my perspective is that if we don't have compassion all the way around for both the children and the parents, there's really no hope in repairing the relationships because nobody wants to be in that perpetrator role that Sarah mentioned. When people start to look at themselves that way, oftentimes they just shut down. And I think the really important thing is to be able to be accountable for one's own behavior as the parent. When you have done something that has harmed your child, you have more power in the relationship, even if you don't realize it. So Parents need to hold themselves accountable for their own behavior, and it can be really hard for them to see that when they may feel like a victim because of the way their childhood was. So possibly the way the parent and the child feel inside is very similar because of similar intergenerational patterns and intergenerational trauma. So that is what that relates to what you'll be hearing about this week. But before we go on to that, I just want to share with you a couple more comments. Next comment comes from Eric Green, who is actually a friend of mine from childhood, and he's been a prior guest on Therapy Chat. Eric said, I've always enjoyed every episode of Therapy Chat. Thank you, Eric. But not so much with this one. There's a pattern I notice in discussions around estrangement. And that is how much attention and concern is given for the estranged parents of adult children with very little concern or attention given to estranged adult children. At least in this episode, there isn't as much blame and shame towards the adult children as I've heard elsewhere. And Tina Gilbertson's advice is at least a step in the right direction. But it just doesn't go nearly far enough. Estranged parents have a lot of inner work to do. They are 99 times out of 100 clueless about what's going on with their adult children. And whenever challenged about that, you always hear the old, 
Well, they did the best they could do. And that's supposed to silence any suggestion that maybe there actually was some abusiveness or narcissism or alcoholism or emotional neglect or whatever it was that caused the break in the relationship. But nobody wants to talk about that. Everyone wants to soothe the hurts of the estranged parent and tend to their wounds. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Everyone deserves empathy and understanding. The problem is that we dismiss the real issues that happened in the actual relationships, the minimizing, the gaslighting, the drinking, the emotional neglect, the authoritarian attitudes, the abusiveness, whatever it was. Seems like nobody wants to ever get into that. And as for the hurts and wounds experienced by estranged adult children, rarely ever mentioned, just like in this episode, Eric kindly said, I'm sorry, Laura, I do love your show, but I'm really not a fan of what I heard on this episode. So I really appreciate what Eric shared. And actually, I agree with most of what he said, because in our culture, you know, we tend to dismiss people's experiences of being abused and neglected physically and emotionally. We tend to tell people they need to just get over it and honor their parents. And there's this whole ideal in our in our culture that family is everything. You should always respect your parents. You owe them your life. And, you know, it's not true that if you were abused, that you have to revere your parents in spite of that. I would never encourage anyone who's been abused by their parents to let it go, forgive and forget. I think that healing is possible with or without the parent's participation. And if a parent is abusive and they don't want to be involved in a healing process, then there is no way I would ever encourage anyone to try to make that happen. In fact, I find it's often the opposite that the child does attempt and attempt and attempt to get the parent to understand how they feel about what happened. And the child is really, the adult child is really willing to forgive and just wants to repair the relationship. And oftentimes the parent just is unable to face the way they harmed their child. And so they just won't consider it. And it shuts down any possibility of really having a repair. So I believe I 100% agree with Eric's statement, estranged parents have a lot of inner work to do. And I think that although we didn't get into it in depth on 253, because you can only talk about so much in 45 minutes, that is what Tina helps with. She helps the estranged parents do the inner work that's needed to understand how they've impacted their children and how they were impacted by the way they were raised. Once they can develop empathy for themselves, now I'm guessing, I mean, this is what I took away from our conversation. I don't know exactly what she does with people, but what I took away is that when the parent begins to recognize the impact of trauma on them, they can have empathy for what they went through with their child and they can have empathy for how they hurt their child and and forgiveness within themselves, but not meaning that they shouldn't be accountable for it. You know, you can't really have, in my opinion, you can't have true forgiveness without the person who committed the wrongdoing acknowledging what they did. If they say they didn't do anything wrong, then how can I forgive them when they say nothing happened? So I really appreciated what Eric shared. And I agree that it's less common for people to focus on the person who was abused. That's 
a big blind spot in our culture, something that I'm really trying to change. And I'm using abuse as a blanket statement there, referring to childhood trauma. It could be it could be emotional neglect. It could be physical neglect that, that really the parent couldn't help because it was because of poverty. But still, it impacts the child, even into adulthood. And I think the reason why the compassionate perspective is so important to me is because when I work with people who've experienced childhood trauma and abuse, I see that they often have many regrets about the way they've parented their children as well, because they've reacted to their trauma. And maybe because of dissociation or depression or anxiety, there have been many attachment disruptions in their relationships with their children. And somewhere we have to break the cycle. So I feel that if we can't have an openness to each person in the relationship's experience. Now, I'm not going to ever say, you know, a child has to acknowledge how they abuse the parent too by not listening or not being obedient or something. No, that's not, that's not valid to me. Children can't abuse their parents. Parents have the power from the beginning. And even in adulthood, when, you know, a child may be bigger and stronger, the parent still has more power in the relationship, even if they don't realize it. I'm sure that there are some examples that someone can bring to me that would negate what I just said, but that's my stance in general. So I appreciate Eric's, Eric's comments there. And I think that on Therapy Chat, one of the things that I'm really trying to do is to help everyone who listens understand how prevalent trauma is in our culture, where it comes from, and what we can do about it. A thousand different ways, that's what I'm trying to do on this podcast. So this is the last comment I wanted to share. It's much shorter, but um, it's from Jennifer M. And she said, I agree with everyone else, referring to Sarah and Eric. We need more discussion on parents initiating the estrangement and rejection of their children. As I've done research to try and understand my parents never wanting a relationship with me, it's been very hard to find anything written or spoken about that regarding that dynamic. Can you do a podcast about that? So I'm definitely going to look into that and um, hopefully I can get someone on to talk about that, that topic of parents initiating the estrangement. But, you know, to me, I see that right now without having talked to a new person about this. I see that as just another way of perpetuating the dysfunctional relationship. You know, if parents are shunning a child because they don't approve of something, which of course happens so often, especially in LGBTQ youth, that their parents just completely reject them or in families where religion dictates that they not embrace their child if the child is not conforming to whatever the religion requires and other cultural ways that we in our cultures can reject our children when they're not what we want them to be or who we want them to be instead of letting them be who they are. That's just another playing out of a dysfunctional family dynamic to me. But there is, you know, specific difference in being rejected and shunned by your parents and being raised with your parents where they say that they love you and support you and want you to be yourself, but there's also emotional neglect or something. So there are nuances for sure. 
But broadly, I see it as a another dysfunctional dynamic that plays into a lot of the things that we talk about on Therapy Chat. So thank you, Jennifer. And I will look into that. So I wanted to share those those comments with you to see what you think. You know, do you have any thoughts about Sarah, Eric, and Jennifer raised about episode 253? If you do, please go to the therapychatpodcast.com website and leave a message using the speak pipe button. For now, with it being Thanksgiving week, which is really when the holidays start to ramp up, even though certainly in the U.S. and I'm sure around the world, holidays are very different this year with the pandemic. This week, let's revisit my past episodes about about how the holidays aren't happy for everyone and some of the reasons that can be and what we can do about it. It's an older episode that I think is still relevant, but it doesn't mention the coronavirus at all because that was long before that was ever a thought in my mind. And then the second part of this week's episode is talking about dysfunctional family dynamics with a favorite guest, Sharon Martin, LCSW. So please listen in. I'd love to know what you think. And you can go to therapychatpodcast.com and leave me a message telling me what you think about this episode and about the comments. And also, I welcome more comments about episode 253 if you have a different perspective that wasn't mentioned. Last thing, I just want to let you know that if you are a therapist and you have been interested in joining one of my online clinical consultation groups to improve your skills in working with clients who have trauma and prevent the long-term impact of vicarious traumatization through our work. Stay tuned for information that will be coming soon about my next consult groups starting in 2021. So you'll hear more about that in future episodes, but I just wanted to let you know that's coming. If you're interested, you can feel free to email me to be put on the waiting list to get the information, but everyone's going to be hearing about it soon. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all are well and talk to you soon. It's that time of the year again, late November. It's time for holiday cheer in all of its forms. We start with everything pumpkin spice, then comes turkey, cranberries, pumpkin pie, lights, wreaths, peppermint mocha, evergreen trees, family gatherings, gifts. Then the tail end of the season brings New Year's parties, resolutions and goals for a wonderful year ahead. Some of us look forward to this time of year with excitement and joy, envisioning happy reunions with loved ones who live nearby and those who we don't see as often due to distance or for other reasons. We imagine everyone laughing, enjoying time together, feeling gratitude, contentment, and peace. There are parties to attend, heartfelt gifts to give and receive, special traditions and family celebrations which have been repeated year after year. But not everyone's feeling the love. For many of us, the holidays are actually quite the opposite. My clients often share that the holidays are the most difficult time of their year. Why? And I don't know if any of you listening can relate to this, but I'll give you a few good reasons why some people feel like getting through the holidays is an accomplishment every year. 
So the first reason would be you want to feel excited about the holidays, but you can't be with the people you love. You may have lost someone you love in the past year. The first everything without them is hard, but the holidays seem to hit particularly hard. It might feel like you're just going through the motions. Nothing feels the same. Even if the loss of this special person isn't new, you're reminded of the pain of missing them at every holiday. Or maybe this is your first Thanksgiving or insert your favorite winter holiday here since an important long-term relationship ended. Being suddenly single at the family gathering can feel like you have all eyes on you as you try to act normal and hope no one will ask about why you and your ex aren't together anymore. Maybe you can't be with your family and it just doesn't feel right celebrating the holidays away from the people you love. Whether you're a deployed military member or you're the family member waiting for the military member to return and you're back home, it's hard being away from the people you love at the holidays. Sometimes it's just a matter of geographical distance. It's too hard to visit at this time of the year. And let's face it, traveling in November and December, particularly around Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, and Christmas, it's the most expensive and stressful time for air travel. You might have limited time off from work and spending two out of the five precious days that you have off hustling through airports or driving on congested roadways so that you can visit for a short time only to turn around and do it again to get back home might be less than appealing. Maybe you're divorced and you're dreading dividing the holiday time with the kids between you and your ex. Maybe you're local, but you have to staff the hospital, the fire or police station, work the mobile crisis team, answer a 24-7 hotline, or do some other job that doesn't end so that your coworkers can be home with their families. And while you love your job, it does put a damper on holiday celebrations. Another reason why people say that the holidays can be the most difficult time of the year for them is trying to create the perfect holiday. It's stressful. We all know consumerism is at an all-time high during this time of year. Stores start putting up their Christmas displays sometimes right at Halloween. Black Friday, the annual shopping day after Thanksgiving that supposedly offers the best sales has crept into Thanksgiving. And um, I'm sure you've heard people complaining about store workers who have to miss their Thanksgiving meal because they're in the store preparing for people to start coming in at 5 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day. Maybe you feel pressure to find the perfect gift for everyone on your list. You worry about choosing the best combination of thoughtful and affordable for each person. And each year as your list grows longer, it becomes more difficult to do that. Many people feel that the proper way to celebrate the holidays is decorating your house just so. This means putting up lights outside, decorating with wreaths, candles in the windows, setting just the right festive tone. But it has to look better than everyone else's house and it can't be the same as what you did last year. That's expensive. It takes a lot of time and it can be really stressful. You're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to make it look a certain way and to outdo yourself and outdo your neighbors every year. Both you and anyone who might be helping you with all that decorating can feel pretty stressed. And the holidays can put a huge strain on finances. I don't think that's any surprising news. When you add up the cost of greeting cards, postage, home decorations, holiday meals for larger than usual numbers of people, hosting parties, alcohol, buying the right outfit for every party you go to, travel expenses. It's quite a lot above our usual monthly budgets and 
many of us don't get any kind of extra pay in the months of November and December to provide these these extra dollars, not to mention the cost of buying gifts. So I know some people get end of year bonuses, but I've never really been one to get those huge bonuses as a therapist. But, you know, even for those people who receive that, usually that's part of what they count on is their annual salary. It's not like you want to spend all of that on making one holiday special. Another thing that can make the holidays extra challenging is putting pressure on yourself to create perfect holiday memories. Buying children expensive gifts can be a way that parents try to ensure their kids' happiness. If your financial situation is strained, you may find yourself comparing the number of gifts you're giving your kids for Christmas or Hanukkah with, with what other families are doing and feeling you come up short. That can cause a lot of shame at this time of year. Third reason that can make the holidays extra hard for people is when you can't stand getting together with your family of origin. If you're not familiar with that phrase, family of origin means the family you grew up in. If you had a less than happy childhood, those feelings frequently come to a head at this time of year. When gathering with extended family, unresolved and unspoken issues can be the elephant in the room. No one's willing to talk about it, but everyone knows it's there. Tommy and Joey don't get along and mom and dad keep trying to get them to spend time together. Or Uncle Fred is creepy and everyone feels uncomfortable around him, but no one feels like they can speak up. Family members create secret alliances. Certain people join together and others are kept in the dark about what's going on to avoid anyone being upset. But the kids, who can usually sense what's really happening, they may act out, feeling the stress and tension that's palpable while the adults seem oblivious. Then when the kids are acting out, the adults get more stressed. It's a cycle. Some family members may think of family gatherings as a time to pretend to be one big happy family, but others are just waiting for the chance to air their grievances that they've been holding in all year long. Maybe everyone's pretending to be happy through clenched teeth, but then the alcohol starts flowing and people are saying what they really think. Longstanding jealousy and resentment between siblings tends to show up in these situations. Part of you might be hoping to have that perfect holiday you think everyone else enjoys, but another part of you is dreading seeing these people again. So I made this list of three reasons why people may dread the holiday season rather than looking forward to it. Because we get the message we're supposed to love the holiday season. It's supposed to be so wonderful. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But if you feel disappointment and grief over what's missing, it can be overwhelming. And many of us are feeling that way throughout the months of November, December, and January. If this is a problem for you and you really want things to change, you don't want to feel this way every year, therapy really can help. You don't have to feel that way. It is a time of year that can be really special and it's what you make of it. The holiday season is supposed to be a time of joy and light, but memories of loved ones who aren't there can bring painful emotions to the surface. Feelings of loss related to wishing for a happier childhood frequently arise at this time of the year. Rather than being the most joyful time of the year, November through February is often the most stressful time of the year. If that resonates for you, then keep listening for three easy strategies for surviving the holidays that you can really use all year long. For those of us who experience feeling unwanted, abandoned, ignored, overlooked, or not good, pretty, smart, successful, loved, rich, thin, or fill in the blank enough in our childhood and teenage years, gathering with family can be more painful than fun. 
Unspoken resentment and unresolved tension interfere with the closeness and loving warmth we wish for when we are together with our families of origin. So these tips will help you get through the holidays with your sense of well-being intact. The holidays are a stressful time for many reasons, but to get through it feeling connected to your values, in control, and emotionally safe, these three strategies can help. First, set boundaries. Do you know what it means to set boundaries? It took me a long time to understand what it meant, but the best way I know to explain boundaries is setting boundaries means defining what is okay and what is not okay for you. So here's how it works. For example, let's say you always gather with your extended family at your mother's house for Christmas. You want to go because it's your family tradition and it's the only time your whole family gathers together. However, your relationship with your mother is strained and you feel uncomfortable being around her. She wasn't really there for you emotionally when you were little, and you aren't close with her now. She's critical of you to your face and talks about you negatively behind your back to your siblings. Furthermore, things usually get ugly after dinner when people have been drinking and the sarcastic remarks, passive-aggressive comments, and criticism start coming out. Last year, you and your uncle got into a huge argument and it hasn't been addressed since you stormed out that night. So you plan to attend this annual ritual this year as always, but you're having mixed emotions. Part of you is hoping this year will be different, that your mom will be kind and loving towards you, and that you and your uncle will get along better. But another part of you is feeling really anxious about going, and the dread is increasing daily. You feel you only have two options. Go and be miserable, or stay home and feel guilty, and have your mom be mad at you. Here's how to set boundaries. First, ask yourself what you need. This can be difficult if you usually make decisions based on what other people need and want rather than your own thoughts and feelings. Consider that you have many options to choose from and pick one that feels right to you. You may decide to stay home and not attend the gathering at all. Or maybe you would prefer to go but not hang around after dinner when things start getting wild. Would it feel better to talk to your uncle beforehand and clear the air about what happened last year? Maybe you'd like to talk to your mom about visiting her on a different day around the holidays When there's less stress and tension, you can choose how you want to show up literally and figuratively for this event. Let your own thoughts and feelings be your guide. It may be helpful to discuss your feelings with a trusted friend or journal about it. Once you've come up for a plan with how you want to deal with the issue of attending the family gathering, talk to your mom about your plans. Let her know what you'll be doing this year by speaking directly and without anger. If setting boundaries is new for you, it may be helpful to practice saying this in a mirror so you can feel more confident. And if this is a new communication style within your family, your mom may balk at hearing that your plans are different from the usual tradition and her expectations. That doesn't mean you're wrong to speak up for what you need. Communicating directly and speaking your truth in a loving way is not wrong. In fact, it's because you love your family and yourself that you want to find a way to attend an important event that feels right for you, so you and your family can enjoy being together. And this is true year round, not only during the holidays. So these strategies are effective anytime. And oftentimes it takes multiple experiences of setting boundaries and sticking to them for your family to really accept that you're going to do things the way that feels best for you instead of subjecting yourself to doing things in a way that you feel miserable. Okay, the second tip is manage your expectations. As I mentioned, sometimes we have ideas about how we hope things are going to be when we interact with our families. 
We have these ideas, even though we've had decades of experience interacting with family members and the communication may not have changed over all those years. So there's a fantasy of how you want things to be. And then there's the reality of how it's more likely to go. Knowing this, it can be helpful to anticipate issues which might arise and plan for how you will deal with them if they happen. For example, although you wish your mom would be kind, loving, and supportive towards you this Christmas, the reality is that she doesn't communicate that way, even if she has those feelings on the inside. And you can't control her behavior. So what can you control? Anticipating what might trigger you during the visit helps you plan ahead, which allows you to feel more in control. For one thing, you can plan for how you might address it if your mother is critical of you. On the other hand, if you're caught up in the fantasy of this idealized perfect family visit, that criticism feels more hurtful because you're surprised and disappointed that things didn't go the way you hoped they would this year. This is also a chance to set boundaries. Ask yourself what you need. What would you like to tell your mom about what is okay and what is not okay with you? Maybe you decide that when she begins criticizing you, you will leave. You can also try ignoring her or changing the subject when the criticism starts. Or you can address it with her directly. How you go about it is up to you, but you have the right to set boundaries with your family so you can feel emotionally safe. Especially if your family of origin was abusive, you owe it to yourself and to your children, if you have them, to set boundaries. Children are stuck in these family conflicts with little to no power over what happens. They're depending on you to keep them safe. Maybe Uncle Freddie gets drunk every year at dinner and begins yelling at his daughter, your cousin Annie. As much as you hate seeing him do this every year, you feel powerless to do anything about it. Again, you can't control his behavior, but knowing that this is likely to happen, you can plan for how you will handle it. It is okay to leave the room when you feel uncomfortable. And you can be as direct as you like in explaining your reason for doing so. Removing your children from witnessing that is also a compassionate thing to do for their sake. And maybe Uncle Freddie will see that you're uncomfortable and realize that he's behaving inappropriately. When others are behaving inappropriately or abusively, you don't owe them an explanation, but you can still excuse yourself without being hurtful if you've anticipated what might come up and how you'll handle it. Setting boundaries with love can help you maintain the relationships you value without feeling as if you're tolerating being mistreated. Once again, managing your expectations about your interactions with family members is something you can do year-round, not just at the holidays. The third tip is practice self-care. Self-care is another concept which we often hear about but don't always understand. Self-care means treating yourself the way you treat someone you love. So you don't have to subject yourself to doing what you've always done for the holidays if you don't enjoy it. What would make you feel good during this time of year? This can be a good time to catch up on rest and relaxation. If it's a particularly sad, painful time for you, allowing yourself to feel your emotions and finding ways to comfort yourself can help. As I suggested previously, ask yourself what you need. Tune into what your body and mind are telling you and let that be your guide. Do you give yourself time to feel your feelings? Or are you more likely to push through and try to ignore feelings which may get in the way of you completing everything on your to-do list? Practicing self-care can be as simple as making time to eat when you are hungry rather than skipping meals in favor of attending to other responsibilities. Stopping work to go to the bathroom is an act of self-care. Getting enough sleep at night is part of a self-care practice. 
setting boundaries, moving your body daily, taking time to read for pleasure, listening to music, walking in nature, soaking in a hot bath, meditation, spending time doing things you love. All of these are examples of self-care. So what does self-care look like for you? You can find a lot of information about self-care on my website, lauraregan.lcswc.com. You can also get there through therapychatpodcast.com. Hopefully these tips will help you remember that you deserve to make self-care an important part of your routine. And if the sadness you feel this time of year is not going away, consider getting in touch with me if you're in Maryland or another therapist to get started feeling better. You might be surprised how much better you can feel. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes a few years ago. I'd say it's about three years now, I believe. And I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but therapy notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes and there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give therapy notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code therapy chat. Now let's get back to our interview. Hi, welcome back to therapy chat. Today I am very happy to be bringing you an interview with someone who has been on therapy chat before. My guest is the wonderful Sharon Martin, LCSW. Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Of course. My pleasure, Laura. I always love talking to you and there's so much overlap in the work that we do, but I use your blog posts and uh, all the different things that you're doing so often with my clients. So I said, hey, let me get her back on here and ask her some stuff that I want to let my clients know about. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So... Um, Let's just start off, if we can, by you telling our audience, for anybody who's not familiar with your work, who you are and a bit about what you do. Sure. Well, I am a psychotherapist and I work in San Jose, California. And so I work in private practice at this point. And the focus of the work that I do in my practice is helping people overcome issues around codependency and perfectionism and people pleasing and, you know, all those things really overlap in a lot of ways. And often a lot of the clients that come and work with me are people who experienced growing up in an alcoholic family, sort of the adult child of an alcoholic is kind of the label that we put on that just to help us kind of, you know, put it into some sense of understanding what some of the common issues are. Um, And so in addition to the clinical work that I do, I do a lot of writing. As you mentioned, I write a a blog called Happily Imperfect for Psych Central. 
and write for some other places as well here and there, but I often write about these same topics. So like you said, you can find out find out more about what I'm doing in, in a lot of the writing that I do either there or um, on my website. Yeah. And I'll be sure that at the end, you get a chance to give a link to where to find all your stuff. Because like I said, I mean, I use it all the time with my clients and, and I always find everything you write to be so helpful. Mm, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that it is helpful. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is growing up in a family where one parent, at least one parent, is an alcoholic. So there are certain characteristics of families that are headed by a parent who's an alcoholic that are pretty common in what I see in my clients who come in as adults. And I know that what you mentioned, codependency, perfectionism, and people-pleasing behaviors tend to be really common for these adults, but they don't always recognize it as being related to the way their childhoods were. So I was just wondering if you could sort of describe what the family dynamics are like in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic. Sure. I, I mean, we can kind of get into so, what some of the, the common dynamics are. I'll just sort of preface it by saying that, of course, every family is different. And this may or may not be true for the family that, that you, the listeners, grew up in. Um, although I think you you may, you know, find that some of it rings true for you and maybe some of it does not. Obviously, mm-hmm. every alcoholic family is a little bit different. And, you know, because alcoholism or addiction is a progressive disease, you know, that it, um, it changes over time. And so depending on, you know, I think the stage of the alcoholic is and the age of the child, um, you know, when a parent is in different sort of phases of the drinking, if you will, or if they're in recovery, um, that will certainly have a big impact on how, how the alcoholism affects the child. And then I think there's also, you know, going to be some mitigating factors about, you know, um, if there are other support people or other support systems that are um, helping, again, sort of um, mitigate some of the, the challenges that are going on. But just to kind of to start us off, I think one of the primary things that happens as the alcoholism progresses is that really the, the whole family system starts to revolve around the alcoholic and the alcoholic's ability to be able to have a constant supply of alcohol and to be able to drink and do drinking-related things, if you will. And so everything sort of becomes about that. And, and each individual plays a part in it, really un- unknowingly, a part in being able to sustain this system. And when we think about, you know, sort of family systems or any kind of system, there's really this, this sort of... Um, big kind of pressure for it to just keep going the way that it's going to maintain the system in its current functioning, even if it's really dysfunctional. Um, And I think this is the part that can be really hard to understand is, you know, why do we, as the family members of the alcoholic, you know, continue to do these things that sort of don't make a lot of sense in some ways that enable the alcoholic to continue the drinking behavior that we all want him or her to stop. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense on the surface, but like I said, when you kind of think about that family system, the alcoholic has a lot of power in the family. And so the alcoholic is sort of the one who's kind of making the rules. And sometimes these, 
these kind of rules are not necessarily written down or even spoken out loud. They're just the things that everybody in the family knows that you're allowed to do this or you're not allowed to do that. And a lot of those family yeah. behaviors become centered around how do we cope with the alcoholics drinking or, you know, um, their behavior when they're drinking or recovering. You know, we learn that there are certain things that we can or can't do because, you know, we can't have friends over in, you know, in the late afternoons because by that point, mom has already had too much to drink. You know, it's those kind of things that maybe are never spoken, but we certainly learn that that's a rule in our family that we can't do that. Um, and so, again, we kind of like we're all focused on how do we navigate this, you know, kind of craziness that's going on in our families without really talking about what's going on. It becomes a big secret. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really not talked about in the family. And it's definitely not something that we feel like we can talk about outside of the family. So it becomes a, a big weight, I think, for people to carry, you know, this big secret, this big source of shame that we can't talk about, that we can't get help for. So I think there's a lot of really kind of suffering in silence that the family does, um, feeling isolated um, and, like I said, ashamed of what's going on. And there's there's a lot of pressure, you know, for the family to look like they have it all together, to look like, you know, a quote unquote normal family and not not let other people know that there's a lot of really dysfunctional things going on sort of behind the closed doors of, of the, the house, essentially. Yes. So I've noticed that there's a lot of overlap between families where the one of the parents is an alcoholic and families where, you know, the dynamics are dysfunctional in general, even if neither parent is abusing substances. It's like, you know, it's that same dynamic of, you know, we don't let people know what goes on inside of our home, you know, whether it's there's abuse happening or the kids you know, everybody looks perfect on the outside, but if people saw how things really were, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's the, I think that overwhelming feeling of shame and of secrecy and that it's chaotic and it's unpredictable. And, you know, especially, you know, for really young children, it's very scary a lot of times, sometimes because, um, it's physically unsafe or emotionally unsafe with a lot of, you know, yelling or verbal abuse. But sometimes, you know, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the alcoholic can can be pretty quiet, if you will. You know, they may be isolating themselves a lot or even not home a lot if they're out drinking. Mm -hmm. But again, there's still this feeling like that even very small children can sense that there's sort of something wrong in their family, that there's this unspoken tension and stress within the family. And so, you know, we all know that children thrive on predictability. They thrive on routine, on, you know, knowing what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. That gives you a sense of security and of safety, which are, you know, very, you know, fundamental pieces of a secure attachment, you know, and I think just the ability to trust other people and um, form healthy relationships in childhood and in adulthood. And so those are sometimes those pieces that are missing, um, again, because the family in one way or another has got this focus on this problem. Like you said, it could be the alcoholism or sometimes it's 
It could be a parent who's got a serious um, mental illness that's untreated. Um, sometimes that can have a very similar effect. A parent who's extremely depressed um, or suicidal has, has a lot of those same dynamics as well. Yeah. Or if the parent is like an abuser, like if they're like sexually abusing one of the children and, you know, there's that same dynamic around protecting that secret and also avoiding that person getting upset and not being able to speak about what's really going on, not being able to really freely express their feelings about how things are at home in general. Yes. I, I think there ends up being that underlying feeling that if we were to let other people know about what's going on in our family, then then it would be disrupted. Even though we know that there's problems and maybe we even know that it is unsafe and we don't like it, you know, families, you know, don't want this disruption of, you know, the sense like somebody's going to come in and start telling us what to do. Or, of course, you know, children often are afraid, you know, their parents are going to split up. Somehow the children will lose their safety and security. Yeah, they'll have to leave their school. Um. And again, I mean, this is where there's, I think there's these sort of contradictory pieces of it. Like I was saying that the home life is unpredictable and often chaotic, which is hard for children. And yet there's still going to be fear of the unknown, which is, I'm still afraid that the change that might happen if somebody finds out about our family problems will create even more problems, or they will create just problems that I don't know how to deal with. Because living in this family, I have figured out some coping skills to be able to navigate this particular type of dysfunction. I can, you know, we sort of learn, we learn to anticipate to some extent, you know, you kind of get that hypervigilance and that real attunement to what's going on so that you can try to keep yourself safe, right? That can mm-hmm. sometimes literally literally be, you know, making a beeline for your bedroom and closing the door as a child so that you can avoid having a confrontation with your father or something like that. You know, so, you, so, you, so you've sort of learned how to navigate that. And, you know, there's the concern that, you know, if we have a different family dynamic, a different setup, you know, like I said, the parents get divorced or we have to go live with our grandparents or, you know, something like then I won't know how to deal with that situation, which, you know, chances are, you know, we could figure out how to deal with that situation. But we all are afraid of the unknown. I think that's just, you know, part of human nature is that we, you know, we worry about what we can't, you know, we can't see and we can't touch and we don't know what it's going to be. And so that creates that anxiety um, that bubbles up in us when we think about, you know, asking for help or getting some support um, from other people about about our family situation. Yeah. And I would say, too, that oftentimes the children feel worried about the parent who is abusing alcohol or substances. And it's kind of like they see them yeah. in the way they can understand as being sick. You know, they're afraid that if anybody finds out just how not OK they are that the child will lose them somehow. Yes. And I think going along with that, you know, there's also this feeling of if, you know, if my parents get a divorce or if I'm not around, then who is going to take care of mom? Let's just say, well, yes. you know, pretend mom's the alcoholic in this situation. It's like, if that has been your job is to make sure that, you know, mom gets into bed every night and the cigarettes put out. So, you know, that's not a danger. You know, if like those have been your jobs in the family, then there's that worry of, oh, you know, I don't I don't know what's going to happen to mom if I'm not around or, 
you know, I don't want mom to get into trouble. I don't want mom to end up in jail. So again, there's a lot of that worry and a lot of that caretaking that that we take on as kids because we love our parents. You know, no matter, I think, you know, the abuse or the dysfunction, you know, we're attached to them and we care about them. They're the only parents we know. Yeah, of course, of course. And we feel protective um, and want to make sure that they are safe. And so, yeah, that's one of those pieces that oftentimes, you know, the roles almost get reversed in alcoholic families where, you know, the children are taking care of the parents instead of the parents taking care of the children because, you know, the parent is just, you know, not able to fulfill those kinds of responsibilities, whether it's, you know, basic things like, you know, cooking meals or paying bills or certainly the emotional caretaking is often lacking that, you know, you can imagine the alcoholics very preoccupied um, and very shut down emotionally that, you know, they really don't have the ability to certainly be in touch with their own emotions or not a, not a wide range of them. Certainly, um, there are often a couple of emotions, like a lot of times anger, that is all you see, but they can't nurture, you know, you as a child emotionally and really encourage you to have much of an emotional range um, or allow you to express a variety of different emotions the, you know, like I said, the whole family really gets shut down emotionally because it's so painful. You know, we really, you know, in alcoholic families, people don't really know how to deal with the painful feelings. And so the way they deal with them is, you know, the alcoholic is drinking and sort of numbing out all the emotions that way, you know, and for the other families, there's a lot of just sort of repressing, you know, pushing down of the feelings um, and sometimes, you know, finding other ways to kind of numb out with other substances or Food is a big one, of course, um, or even just, you know, TV, electronics, just kind of zoning out is, you know, sometimes the way people cope. Yes. And I would say from my experience, I want to bring up two dynamics that I've heard a lot. One is where the child had to, the mom would send the child to the bar or the child would even go with uh-huh the alcoholic to the bar as a way to sort of make sure the person stayed out of trouble or the child is going there to fetch them for the Mm -hmm. mom. Yeah. Which really puts a child in a terrible position. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, had clients tell me very similar things where they were taken to the bar by their alcoholic parent at a very young age. And sometimes they're put in unsafe situations by the alcoholic parent. Absolutely. Or they were to wait in the car while the alcoholic went in to drink in the bar. Or like you said, the other one is, you know, go find your mother, go find your father who's out drinking somewhere and bring them home safely. You know, that became the child's job, which of course, you know, is completely inappropriate um, for a child to have that kind of responsibility. But yeah, sometimes that does happen. Exactly. So the child becomes even to the alcoholic parent, the child is in more of a parentified role of you have to come home now, you know, uh-huh. and they have to like, they're like the stand in for the other parent, but yep. it also, you know, it doesn't like, it gives no awareness to what the child, maybe the child had an argument with a friend at school that day. Who are they going to talk about that with when they have now this responsibility to go and get their dad or mom from the bar and bring them home. And then they know that when they get home, there's going to be conflict with the other parent, you know? Yeah. There's, 
you know, most of the time there isn't anybody in the family that they can talk to honestly about their problems and their feelings. Then that goes for, you know, the problems within the family. And like you said, like the problems that they're having, you know, with their peers or in other areas of their life, it's both, it's just, it's not safe. It's either met with anger and blame. It's kind of turned around on them or it's ignored. I think, I think that's a lot of it is that, you know, everybody in the family is preoccupied with other things, again, sort of maintaining this dysfunctional family system and that nobody has the emotional wherewithal, you know, to sit down with Johnny and ask him how he's feeling and how his day was. Because again, this starts, I mean, it's, if we were to do that, if we had that capability in this family, it would start bringing up all of the quote unquote problems, all of the painful feelings that, you know, this family is working on trying to deny <laughs> everything yeah. that's going on. We're trying to maintain this system, which means we have to say there is no problem. There is no alcoholism. That alcoholism, if we do acknowledge it, is not causing these kinds of problems. That's not what's going on here. And so if you're starting to bring up, you know, these kinds of challenging feelings, that sort of puts the whole system in jeopardy. The system is maintained by everybody keeping their mouth shut. They're keeping their feelings bottled up and, you know, everyone just focusing on, okay, let's just, you know, do our best to try to, you know, tiptoe around the alcoholic and then, you know, the problems that are associated with that. You know, it's very much that sense of like, I'm just walking on eggshells here. You know, I'm just trying to maintain the status quo, not rock the boat, not cause any problems not introduce anything new to the family. Yes. So, and that's, that brings to mind the other common dynamic I've heard from clients where maybe the parent who was abusing alcohol is a single parent and Uh the child would come home and just kind of, you know, come home from school and be like very hypervigilant about, okay, what am I Uh about to walk into? Am I going to find happy dad? Am I going to find drunk dad? Am I going to find dad crashed his car during the day? Am I going to find hungover dad? You know? Yeah. That's that unpredictability that, you know, feeling of being unsafe because I don't know what to expect when I come home. I don't know who I'm going to get essentially. And I think, you know, like you said, it's probably more pronounced in single parent families, but I think kids, you know, when their parents are together still experience that, that feeling of, dread and anxiety about not knowing. And like you said, there's, you know, there's that hypervigilance. Again, that's just one piece of how like the whole family is focused in on what's going on with the alcoholic as a way of like self-protecting. I have to, I have to really know what his mood is so that I can predict if he's going to do X or Y here so that I know how to deal with it. Right. And that goes back to what you said about those coping skills. And I know people sometimes talk about coping skills as something that you learn in therapy to help you through. But I think you're talking about what we would really call, oftentimes we would call maladaptive coping skills. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I kind of use the word unhealthy, but essentially the same thing. But yeah, like we all develop coping skills to get through life. I think you know, it's not, we don't, I guess, you know, just for the simplicity of our conversation, you know, we can kind of talk about them as sort of healthier or less healthy, but of course there's like all this area in between. They're not, they don't nicely fall into categories like that necessarily, but 
Um, some definitely work better for us and some ultimately cause us more problems. You know, and the way I, I really think about this is that, you know, living in the, in the alcoholic family, it's very stressful. It's very challenging. Um, and like we've been talking about, you know, kids from a very young age, they learn how to deal with that. They learn how to navigate that system in order to, you know, keep themselves safe emotionally and physically the best that they are able to. But we don't, when we're little like that, we don't have a lot to work with. And we do not have anyone who is modeling, you know, sort of the healthy coping skills. So we just do the best that we can. And then this is, you know, kind of where we end up in, in adulthood, you know, sort of struggling with certain aspects of our relationships or just aspects of our life because we are continuing to use those sort of unhealthy coping skills that we learned through no fault of our own. Mm -hmm. They were truly the best that we could do when we were children um, and with the resources that we had. But it's often in adulthood or maybe, you know, in adolescence where you start to realize like this isn't really working that well for me. You know, this being, you know, super responsible and taking care of, you know, my parents, you know, when I was 10, you know, that was like a pretty good coping strategy for me in that family. But, you know, here I am when I'm 30 and, you know, I'm burnt out at work and I'm, you know, resentful because I keep you know, giving and giving and doing things for my partner and my friends, and I don't get anything in return, then you start to go, well, you know, hey, maybe this isn't working out so well for me anymore. I really need to make some changes. I need to learn how to set some boundaries, and I need to learn how to take better care of myself, you know, so that I will feel better, and I will be happier, and I will be healthier. And that's where, you know, there's there's sort of like there's there's roots that go back you know, to our childhood in some of the things that are, that are causing us, you know, challenges in our adult life. Um, and maybe the, the, the connection is not always obvious, like you were saying at the beginning of our conversations, but, but often that's, that's what's happened is that, you know, they are really things that um, worked well for us at one point, but now we realize we have more options. You know, that to me, that's one of the big things is, you know, like once you get to be an adult and you leave home, it's not like all of this just magically goes away. Right. And, you know, I think that's often the fantasy is I'm going to leave home and I'm going to leave all this dysfunction behind and I'll start fresh and I'll yes. be different. But, you know, like we obviously can change. But, you know, to some extent, like this mold has been set and we have to work hard to make the changes that we want, you know, as adults. But yes, I mean, it comes with us <laughs> into adulthood. Yes. Um, and, you know, it takes us a long time to kind of unwind some of it and and figure out what else we can do. But like I was saying, I mean, one of the great things is that you recognize now I have so many more choices. There are so many different ways that I can manage things. I have more resources. I have more support people, hopefully. You know, when you're a child, you're you're limited. I mean, there's, you know, only so much that you can do. You obviously don't have independence, you know, to to um, exercise a lot of the options that you have when you're older. Yes, very little control. And you have to do the best with what you have. But when you become an adult and you start to examine, hmm, now why do I do this? And is it working for me? That's your opportunity to say, how do I want to do things differently? What are the, you know, what are the needs that I have that really weren't met when I was younger? And how can I get them met now in a way that's healthy for me and healthy for my relationships? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and something even just as straightforward as, you know, deciding what relationships you want to continue to have. You know, when you're a child, you get the family that you get, basically. Um, you don't get to choose, you know, whether you want to continue to have a relationship with your parents when you're living under their roof, Mm -hmm. you know, but you got to be an adult and you now realize that, wow, I can choose to no longer be friends with this person who continues to, you know, speak abusively towards me. That's an option that I have. And that's, those were not options that you had as, as, as a child. And it's, you know, sometimes it can just be very empowering to realize that, that there are those options for you now. I think sometimes we don't even see them because it's almost like the blinders have been on for so long that you just feel like, oh, I just got to go along with, you know, what everybody wants me to do and the way things have always been. Um, But really there's, you know, there's a whole, whole lot out there. We don't have to do what we've always done or, you know, be the person that our parents or other people, you know, kind of pushed us into being. Right. You know, and I think one of those things being hyper responsible, like you mentioned, is something that oftentimes people just keep on doing. They go, I just work really hard and, you know, work, 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 work. And oftentimes that can be a way to sort of not feel the feelings Uh that are still there from, from that childhood. And yeah, you know, it can really kind of interfering with being able to see your options, but reality is if you look, you know, kind of look within, you don't have to do things the way that you've always done them just because that's what you learned when you were a kid. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of, Laura, is that, you know, I think sometimes, you know, folks, you know, when we start talking about making changes, there's almost this sense or this fear like that we're suggesting that you do a complete 180 and like, you know, you do the opposite of what you've been doing. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to something like being very hardworking, being very responsible, taking care of other people, you know, these are definitely things that are socially acceptable. They are encouraged in our society to a certain extent, and they definitely have their pluses. So Mm -hmm. it's not like we want to just completely stop being a hardworking Um, responsible person. Oftentimes it's just like, can we dial it back a little bit? You know, can we do a little bit less of that? Can we learn to balance it out a little bit more with some rest and some fun? Right. You know, so, so that, um, not at the expense of your own happiness. Yeah. It kind of works better for you that you're, you know, you're getting the advantages, but not the disadvantages of doing things to the extreme, you know, and that's, that's definitely one of, one of those, outcomes of, of growing up in an alcoholic family is that things often, you know, we sort of see things as black and white, you know, it's like, it's right or it's wrong or it's good or it's bad for us. And oftentimes there's, there's a lot of the shades of gray. There's things that we can do a little bit of, and that can be, and that can work well. We don't have to do it, you know, to excess or extreme with things. We can, you know, have a little bit more self-compassion, you know, for ourselves and, we can set more realistic expectations for ourselves rather than just being so hard on ourselves all the time, you know, almost to that perfectionistic um, standpoint sometimes, you know, that, that again is sort of that, that outgrowth of, of, you know, I think the shame and, you know, just being so shut down and needing, you know, the approval from somebody or something outside of yourself to validate that you're, 
worthwhile. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of, you know, just just thinking about small changes, I think, is is often much more doable for people. And it's less scary, obviously, than saying, you know, let's, you know, let's overhaul, you know, all these coping skills that you had. Oftentimes, it's just some small changes, some small adjustments can make a big difference for people. That's very true. Very true. So one thing I wanted to be sure to touch on is if you could tell us kind of what are the the common roles that people tend to have in a family where one of the parents is an alcoholic? Sure. Um, I can go over that briefly for you. So so these family roles um, for an alcoholic family were developed um, by Sharon Wegshader Cruz, and I probably butchered her name, so sorry about that, but... Um, and she did a lot of work um, with alcoholic families, and she came up with these five um, specific family roles that um, she just saw over and over again working with alcoholic families. And it really is pretty remarkable, I think, when you when you hear a little bit about them. My experience is that it really resonate with people. And like I said, it, it's it's almost just sort of shocking to hear them and go, "Oh yeah, that was that was me. That was my role, or that was my brother." Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of how pervasive they really are for people. So the first role is is called the enabler, and this is in most families, it's usually the spouse if there is one. And maybe I should just back up for a second. Is um, these roles are sort of semi fixed within families? Um, people can switch roles. And you can have more than one role at a time. So it does get a little bit confusing, but I'm just going to tell you sort of the, mo- the most um, common formulation of how this looks. So, so usually the enabler is um, the spouse and the enabler is the primary person who is trying to maintain um, the status quo and is trying to, um, you know, sort of unconsciously help the alcoholic continue drinking but not have the negative consequences disrupt the family system. Um, and then the next one is the hero. And this tends to be most often the oldest child in the family. And the hero, you know, I like to think of the hero almost as the perfect child or the very responsible child. That's how some people will um, think about the hero. I mean, this is the person who is supposed to really sort of save the family, if you will is, you know, so good and so perfect all the time. You know, this would be often that parentified child who takes over the adult responsibilities and just makes sure everything gets done in the family and is sort of, you know, supposed to bring this positive attention to the family. And then after that, we've got the scapegoat. And this child is really sort of the opposite of, of the hero. This is, this is the child that receives most of the blame is the child who was identified as the problem. So this might be a child who was acting out and getting into trouble. So instead of trying to get attention from positive achievements like the hero, the scapegoat is trying to get achievement, or sorry, is trying to get attention, negative attention, essentially. And then the next two roles are the lost child and the mascot. And so these are often the youngest child. And sometimes, you know, if there's a third child here, they may have both of these roles the lost child is kind of will kind of go off into his own world. He will often isolate himself and you know kind of be distant. It might be the child who will go in, you know, sit in front of video games and kind of entrench himself in 
TV, video games, books, sort of a fantasy world as sort of an escape. And then the mascot is really sort of like a class clown. This is the child who tries to diffuse the situation with humor and jokes and goofing around and trying to get people to laugh. So, so those are the, you know, those five family roles. And like I said, you know, people can move around within the roles. You know, for example, if like the child who has been the hero child, you know, does something that um, causes them to sort of fall from grace here, sometimes they will become the scapegoat and the scapegoat will become the hero. So you end up with situations like that. You know, and obviously it, it does vary depending on how many children there are in a family. Obviously, there's not always this many children to <laughs> fulfill all of the True. roles. True. Um, and so, you know, what, what we have found from the research tends to be that most likely, like I said, the role tends to be most um, strongly associated with the, the birth order of the children. Although certainly, you know, the, the child's sort of innate temperament or personality traits may impact, you know, or gender of children too, certainly in some families impacts which role they take. So it's not, you know, it's not um, 100% like this all of the time, but it is, it is pretty interesting to, to think about how everybody plays a part in that system. And like I said, like the enabler is the one who is primarily trying to maintain this system, but everybody's role really does play its part in trying to um, keep the status quo going in this family. As dysfunctional as it may be, that is what the whole family system is working on doing. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And that's really helpful. And I mean, I think it is uncanny when you talk to people. And I, I personally believe that those roles and dynamics play out the same, whether it's an alcoholic family or just a generally dysfunctional family, you know, mm -hmm. you can, you can name the same roles and, and see how people do the same behaviors. And it's like, how, it's almost like there's a playbook. It's like, how do we all know what to do? But it's, it's pretty fascinating. So that's why I wanted to share it because when I've showed those roles to people who grew up in alcoholic or dysfunctional families, they're always just like you said, like, Oh, Oh my gosh, that's me. And that's my sister. And that's my brother. And this, I think this was my mom. And, you know, so it's really, um, I think it just helps organize something that seems so overwhelming when it's actually your own family. And just to look at it on, on paper and go, Oh my gosh, this is exactly what we did. Yeah. And I think maybe there's some element that maybe helps break down some of the stigma and isolation around it too. Just when you realize like, no, it was not just your family that had these roles. It was not just your family who, you know, was acting like this, not just your family who had this big secret. There were, you know, unfortunately there are tons and tons of families who are struggling with very similar issues and it plays out in very similar ways but you don't realize that because we're not talking about it. Yeah. And, and to me, the other thing that, that's kind of fascinating about it too is just, you know, even in healthier families, siblings within within a family can have such different experiences. But I think this is very poignant too, just to, you know, recognize that, you know, two or three or four siblings in this family can have such a vastly different experience of growing up in the alcoholic family in terms of what was expected of them and how they went about trying to cope with it um, and what the, you know, sort of the outcome has been for them, what they continue to struggle with as an adult. 
yeah, it's, it's interesting just how, how different that experience can be for people. Yeah. It's so interesting. I often talk to people who will say, you know, maybe it was just them and a younger sibling and they'll say, why do I feel so terrible and so, you know, wounded by my childhood, but I look at my younger sibling and they really don't seem to suffer the same way. And I, I always say, well, what did they have that you didn't have? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, you, <laughs> the older <laughs> sibling <laughs> who was, you know, they're kind of buffering and helping to soothe and ease things as much as possible for the younger sibling, which is, you know, not always the case. They can't always yeah. do that, but it's, it's a pretty common scenario. Yes. Yes. They often are the protector. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's, I think part of that hero that often that oldest child is the one who, you know, keeps the little one safe. Yeah. Which is, you know, then the older one misses out even more on the normal developmental tasks of childhood and doesn't get to be just a kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's often, often the feeling that people have is that they they didn't get a chance to be kids to just play and be carefree and, you know, do normal, you know, childhood activities. It was, you know, they had to grow up really fast. Yeah. So for the last, last part of our conversation, I would like to ask a question that was submitted by one of our listeners. I think this is so fun that someone who was listening um, found out, because I told them that I was going to be interviewing you <laughs> and they said, Oh, I want to ask her a question. So this, this is the question. It's from Elizabeth. And she said, as someone who grew up with an alcoholic father, I personally know the burden that alcohol addiction places on families from a very early age. She said that she did in her therapy, a genogram where she mapped out characteristics of her family relationships and realized that there was transgenerational alcoholism and substance abuse on her father's side of the family, um, especially among the males. And so she wants to know, what can you say, Sharon, about what are the drivers that cause individuals to repeat those behaviors across generations? Because she's wondering why someone who grew up in a family where their parent was an alcoholic would grow up and do the same thing, be an alcoholic? Yes, it's a, a fabulous question and one that I think on the surface is, you know, a big conundrum. Like, why would you repeat, you know, this mm -hmm. very dysfunctional system? You know how devastating it was for you and you don't want to do the same to your children. And I, and I really do believe that that is, that is true for people is they don't want to repeat this cycle. You know, so interestingly, I think we, we should probably just throw in one, one piece is that, you know, we know that addiction has a genetic component. So that's part of it is that some people are, are more prone to, you know, becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or other kinds of substances or things. Um, so that's part of why we see alcoholism or drug addiction, um, you know, going through generation upon generation. But the other part is that these family dynamics get repeated over and over again for a number of reasons. Like one is, you know, this is what was modeled to you. And like we were talking about is that this is how you learned how to solve problems. This is how you, you know, learn to deal with painful feelings. 
Um, this is how you learn to relate to other people. This is how you learned how to feel about yourself. Um, those basic ideas about your self-worth, you know, come from that experience in that alcoholic family. And so if there really isn't a lot of work that's done on recovery and learning new ways of coping, solving problems, different ways of thinking and feeling and, you know, really building some self-worth, some self-esteem, whatever you want to call it. We don't have anything else to work with. Like we know that that's not what we want to repeat, but unless we have, I think, really sort of accepted what has happened to us and really done a lot of work on healing and learning some different ways of dealing with, with the world, we we essentially don't have any new ways of doing it. And that's part of what happens in the alcoholic family is it's a very closed system. You know, the denial is so strong that no new information can penetrate that, right? If, you know, somebody tries to, you know, bring in some new information or a suggestion or an offer of help or something, it's often met with, you know, rejection, you know, there's that feeling like we don't even have a problem. So why would we need that, you know, counseling or that AA group or, you know, whatever, or there's different, you know, coping strategy. Yes. So, so often that is what is happening is that, you know, people just aren't, aren't really learning another way of doing things. And I don't know, I feel like I keep saying this. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the truth is that it's always easier to just repeat what we already know than it is going to be to learn something new. And in this context, where the like the talking about learning something new um, involves having to uncover all of that buried pain yes. from, you know, years and years and years of painful feelings that we have smushed down, you know, so far, it's a lot of work to pull them up. And frankly, it's very unpleasant. It's mm -hmm. very painful for people to start to feel painful feelings when they're, you know, they have been trying so, so hard to not feel those feelings. So, I mean, it's definitely not that people want to repeat these patterns, you know, and I think a lot of times people have good intentions, but sometimes they also don't, not everyone has access to help and information. I think, you know, we take it for granted that, that everybody can go to counseling or, you know, can get the books or that. I mean, there are a lot of things out there more and more, but there are still, you know, some people who, who don't have a lot of access, but, you know, you know, things like just being able to listen to this podcast or, you know, going and checking out some books from the library is at least a starting place. I mean, it's probably not going to, you know, be able to, um, you know, change everything. I mean, for people, but, um, you know, the, the 12 step programs are also widely accessible and those are a great resource. I mean, they, you know, they have meetings by phone and by internet too, if people can't physically get to, um, those kinds of self-help programs too. So I don't know, I think now I'm just, um, babbling. <laughs> No, but I think that I'll answer some of it for her. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Thank you. And I think what you're, you're kind of saying, but didn't say directly. So I'll just say it is that, you know, people don't always have the self-awareness to realize that they're repeating the pattern yeah. and, you know, they don't just like they had to not see how things really were in their family of origin. They can't really see how things really are now, but they it's possible yeah. to, but it's just, you know, they, they aren't intentionally repeating it. It's unconscious. 
No, yeah, I think, you know, and I think that shame and yes, really, you know, the feeling of helplessness that, you know, there are a lot of people who have really almost, you know, just but even by the time they get to early adulthood have really just sort of given up, like mm-hmm. they just don't see that it's possible to do anything else. You know, and and the thing is that, you know, for most people, drinking and substance use begins early, <laughs> you know, shockingly yes. early. So, you know, when you talk about that self-awareness, I mean, it's hard when you're 13 to have a lot of self-awareness, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. For a lot of times, by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they have already started heavy, you know, drinking or drug use. Like the, you know, it's already started. So, so, so it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the numbing has already begun and it just kind of maintains and shows up in different ways throughout the teens and 20s and often thirties, forties. And then the person goes, Oh man, wow. Like what happened? How did I get here? I need to get help. Uh uh Yeah. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to therapy chat to talk about this. I think this was a really helpful and fascinating conversation. And where can people find more of what you're doing? Sure. My website is live well with Sharon so from there, you can find find everything you need. Wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Sharon, thank you so much. I just really enjoyed this. And I might ask you to come back again and talk a little more. So sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.